this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And here we are, episode 101, starting our next 100 episodes. Yay. Yeah. And someone Uh, recently was asking on one of the Twitter feeds or Facebook things I go on for podcasts, (laughs) asking podcasters, do you have seasons or just a list? And I'm like, we just have a list. Yeah. I don't have seasons. I think the whole point of having seasons is then you can take dedicated time off. You can take a break, yeah. But we stupidly didn't think of that. Well, we just take it off when we need it, so. And then people get mad. I know I have updates, but I've been busy and I haven't been able to get my shit together. So people are just going to have to do without. But I know you have one. I have one, and I thought I had another one, but I can't remember what it was. But this (laughs) one just came up. This was just the other day. Episode 43 was about Ashley Willette, who was a young woman that was found dead in the middle of the road in uh, Scarborough, Maine. In that episode, I talked about another missing person. They had mutual friends. It was Angel Torres, and he has been missing for 22 years, Mm. since 1999. He disappeared the spring it was after it wasn't long after ashley was killed but you'd have to listen to the um episode Mm. i personally don't think they're related to each other his parents seem to think they are anyways he's been missing for it's a hell of a coincidence i'm not saying it's not a coincidence but no you can't help i think especially if you're close to them feel there must be some connection there may be a connection right it just hasn't been it's more complicated than that and i also talked about him in a later one of our episodes where we had updates and i talked about him more it was i think it was the 20th anniversary of his disappearance i feel kind of bad they've had a fifteen thousand dollar reward for information leading to finding him and they've just upped the reward to 16500 So oh. they, uh, so 10% more. If anyone hasn't come forward yet, I don't know if they're going to, unless they just have an attack of conscience. They remind us in this article, which was in the Press Herald the other day, I'll just quote from the article. Maine State Police say they continue to investigate Torres' disappearance, but the man Torres was with the night he disappeared, Jay Carney, died of a, of a suspected drug overdose in 2015. Carney was potentially a key witness. You'd have to listen to the episode to see the whole story. And he, he was also connected to the Ashley He Willett. was connected to Ashley Willett, yes. I right. believe he was at, at the place where she was last seen. I'm not saying they don't. They right. might be tangentially, if that's the right word, connected, but I don't think his disappearance is a direct result of, I don't think like this. there's a right. serial killer out there I don't know. You know, it's that yeah. type of thing. No, no, I wouldn't think it was a serial killer. I'm trying to remember what the episode, more like he knew something about Ashley's death. Mm-hmm. So then somebody felt he had to disappear. And I feel like he knew probably what a lot of people knew and suspected. Right. I don't think he knew anything. But even if you give the impression that you know more yes, than you as really we talked do, about, yes, somebody yeah. might think you know yeah. something and, and it doesn't I, really matter if you do or not if someone right. thinks you do if the wrong person thinks and i that. wanted to say too about the um reward money people may think oh after all these years what point is there to just adding fifteen hundred dollars but i think it's more to get the media yes to mention 
him than for somebody to say, oh man, it was only 15 grand, but now it's 16.5. I'm definitely, I wasn't yeah, going to talk before. Yeah, I think it before, just but... brings it up, but keeps it right. in the news. Right. And I, and I really feel bad for his parents. I don't I know do how too. I'd feel if, yeah. if I didn't know what happened. I'm sure he's not alive. It no. is sad. How sad to not know. Okay. So you don't have any updates? Well, so... right. I don't. Well, I, you I, don't... I sh- not tonight. Right. I should, but I don't. And I also, I, people will probably be glad I, I did hit something I wanted to rant about, and now I can't. There are just so many things. I couldn't, can't remember what it is. So I don't there have that something either. I wanted to say something about, and I can't remember either. There's just so much, you know, it's There's hard quite to... a bit. I found that the topic I'm doing tonight brought on some anger for me oh. that I didn't expect <laughs> when I decided to do oh. it. Now, this, Will uh, I be angry, too? I'm sure you, yeah, okay, well, okay. you always are, so <laughs> we, 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 it doesn't take much to get us going. So this topic um, I'm going to tell you about is it's a violent crime that took place about 200 steps from my front door nine years ago. And I don't know Ooh. if you'll re- recognize this or not, or if you'll remember it. I don't, yeah. Um, when I remembered it uh, a couple weeks ago, I was just thinking about it when I was probably stopped at the light and looked over. And I remembered it as being a murder, but it's not. It wasn't a murder. It was almost Spoiler. a murder. Could have been a murder. Well, you find that out pretty quick. Okay. It could have easily ended as a murder. I got most of my information from the Portland Press-Herald, uh, some from the Mangor Daily News, and the Family Forecaster. And there are a couple other, there might be, there's at least one other source, but I'll just talk about it when I come to it in my okay. story. So it happened in 2012, before I moved to this neighborhood. And the neighborhood you live in now? With in the neighborhood I live in now, yes. Um, Portland is Maine is a small city, and there really aren't any bad neighborhoods. There are some kind of sketchy places, and I've lived in a couple of them over the years. This neighborhood has never been great. It still has a lot of slummy homes and stuff. I live at the base of Mundry Hill, which is on the east end of the city. I've lived in Portland off and on since 1983. The heart of the city of Portland is on a peninsula that kind of curves into Casco Bay. The eastern promenade faces northeast with views of Falmouth and Casco Bay. There are some lovely homes on the promenade, Mm. but between the promenade and downtown Portland is Munjoy Hill, which was historically home to a lot of working class families, mostly Irish and Italian, and some Jewish, but the Jewish neighborhood was kind of wiped out in part of the Italian neighborhood when they put in an art. As was the African-American neighborhood. Yes, exactly. Slowly over the past couple decades, Munjo Hill has become gentrified. Mm -hmm. The triple-deckers and older homes have been replaced by 21st century blocky condo buildings, or the older homes have been fixed up to be luxury condos. Back when I was in art school, it's where a lot of my school friends lived in shabby apartments. Later in my 20s, I lived in several different places on the hill. It was affordable, and I liked it. I liked the crumminess. I still do. I like it. I'm still happy when I walk down some streets and they're still scummy because... Because there's so much uh, hipsterish yes, stuff going on. Yes, it's an issue. Back in the 1980s and into the 1990s, there were a few areas on the peninsula, as it's called, that were considered bad. I lived in all of them. I had apartments on Grant and Sherman (laughs) Street and Park Avenue, Cumberland Avenue, living among drug dealers and sex workers when I was 18 to 25. It still seemed pretty safe to walk home at night, which I had to do because I didn't have a car. And I never had any issue walking home at, you know, and in the dark. On the corner near my home now, where I live now, there used to be a strip club called the Stardust. It closed sometime in the 1990s. I lived up on Munjoy Hill at the time, and my neighbor, a young woman about my age back then, was 
a part-time sex worker. He used to stand across the street from the Stardust about midnight to 1 a.m., which is closing time in Maine for bars. Currently, the space that housed the Stardust is occupied by a hipster bar and an artisanal pizza place. Mm -hmm. The crummy apartment building where my neighbor stood in the doorway burned down in the mid-1990s, and it's now a child and family services place. The corner of Congress Street and Washington Avenue and the intersection of Washington Avenue and Cumberland Avenue come together almost as one intersection with two convenience stores, Kitty Corner, 7-Eleven, and CM Brown Big Apple. Both were open 24 hours a day until COVID hit. Now they're like 11 to, I don't know, they're closed 11 p.m. to like 6 a.m. or something. In August 2012, a 25-year-old sex worker named Sherry met a guy in the parking lot of the Big Apple. Less than an hour later, she was lying in an alley off the side street behind the store, badly beaten and left for dead. The first headline read, Scarborough Firefighter Denies Beating Woman. In the story, the man arrested 28-year-old Eric Guaro tells the Press Herald, I am an upstanding citizen. I thought I was doing the right thing. Apparently, I'm the person they were looking for. Several tenants in the apartment buildings on Montgomery Street, a short one-way street that runs between Cumberland Avenue and Congress Street, called police that early Thursday morning to report a man beating a woman. The witnesses told police they saw a man run towards Peppermint Park on Cumberland Avenue. Police found Eric Guaro hiding in a hedge. When he saw them, Eric yelled, stop, and then jumped over the fence. Hmm. The police grabbed him in Peppermint Park. Eric told them he was chasing the man who was beating the woman. Police didn't believe his story and told the paper they found evidence that indicated Eric was the person who was doing the beating, and they arrested him. Although this article and every news item after this one refers to Eric Warr as a firefighter, he was actually a bartender and a part-time firefighter. I think they just like the idea of a firefighter being a criminal. It's more shocking or something. Sometimes, too, lots of times somebody, the first night they write about it, latches on to that, not really knowing, like somebody probably said, oh yeah, he was on the fire department, blah, blah, blah. And then everybody else who writes the story and writes the headlines and stuff latches onto it because they really don't know that much about it and they're just lazy. Yeah, I think be. people Although sometimes give see. the media too much credit for their thinking. Yes. In any case, Eric Guara was a call firefighter in Scarborough, Maine. He had been doing the job since May of 2012 for 9.41 an hour. And though the article doesn't explain it, I think it's safe to assume this means he didn't stay in the firehouse or anything. He would be called out to fires as It means he's a volunteer fireman. Yes, he is. most Most fire departments in the state are... And they do call him that later in the articles. Yeah. His other job, which he'd been working for over a year, was a bartender at Inn by the Sea in Cape Elizabeth. Mm. He told the Press Herald that he'd moved to Maine in 2010 for his wife's job. A friend of Eric Guaro's who worked with him at the Inn by the Sea told the paper, I could literally vouch for him, and everyone who works with him would vouch for him as the nicest person. Now, he would never do that. End quote. Mm-hmm. This friend, Eric Goldberg, believed his friend and co-worker Eric Guara was telling the truth that he was chasing the real bad guy. Scarborough Fire Chief Michael Thurlow told the Press Herald that they always do background checks on new hires. He said Eric Guara was, quote, the kind of guy we're looking for, married, settled down, end hmm. quote. But after saying Eric was now on unpaid leave, he said, quote, I really don't know the guy well. <laughs> I was like, geez, wait a third, you know. About 2.28 the morning of August 30th, police received a call from the Preble Street Resource Center. 
A woman who works at the center said that a man had urinated on the side of the building and seemed really drunk. He got in a maroon Ford SUV and drove away. The car was stopped shortly after the call and police interviewed Eric Guaro. He didn't seem drunk to them and his shirt didn't match the description of the one the woman at the Preble Street Resource Center gave them, so they let him go. They later learned that Eric had either changed his shirt or turned it inside out. Duh. Mm. I, I mean, it's 2.30 in the morning. How many freaking cars are driving That's not the same around? shirt, because this one has seams on the outside, and the one she described in it, <laughs> his has this a tag on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> a half hour later, he was hiding in a hedge next to Montgomery Street. Eric was charged with aggravated assault, a Class B felony. After his arrest for the assault, the police found his car parked on Washington Avenue and impounded it while they applied for a search warrant. Eric was released on $10,000 cash bail. A reporter from the Press Herald asked him why he was in Portland at that time of the morning. Eric said, I can't really discuss my case. Right now, my first job is to really get out of here. A month later, on September 27th, the headline in the Press Herald read, Scarborough Firefighter Faces New Charge and Brutal Assault. The new charge was elevated, aggravated assault, and his new bail was set at $50,000 cash. The article didn't say if his bail was paid or if he had to go to jail after the hearing, but then a later article does say so. It turns out that there was a security video from the Big Apple store that showed Eric Guaro dragging Sherry York, the victim, by the mm-hmm. hair through the parking lot towards the Cumberland Avenue garage. The prosecutor, Meg Ellum, who's been in several of our episodes, told the court that witnesses saw Eric punch Sherry and stomp on her her head mm. in the this article it was reported that eric was wearing two shirts and switched them to change his appearance if you remember the last one said he turned it inside out but apparently he had two t-shirts and that was enough to fool the cops mm-hmm. the video showed a maroon car pull into the store's parking lot a little after 2 a.m sherry york went up to the car and spoke to the driver then got in and the car drove away 23 minutes later, Sherry York was seen on the video going into the store, pacing around the store and crying. Her face was swollen. About 10 to 15 minutes later, the video showed a man in a red baseball cap hugging and kissing Sherry, who was trying to get away from him. And he left. Then a man wearing a different shirt, and the article doesn't say if he has a hat on, but he does. You can see in the video. He appears on the video to be chasing her and dragging her across the parking lot. One of the witnesses was a woman who had a view of the Cumberland Avenue garage from her bedroom window. The Cumberland Avenue garage, the building is right behind the Big Apple, and then next to it is a parking lot, which is on the corner of Montgomery Street, and I think that's what she saw, that that's where the beating took place, in the parking lot of the Cumberland Avenue garage. She told police she saw a man kick a woman in the head five or six times, then grab her by one arm, toss her onto his shoulder, and walk away. When police showed up minutes later, they found Sherry unconscious on... Montgomery Street, some articles say, and others say she was in an alley. And I think she was in an alley off. And I tried to find the alley, but it, I think it's behind the apartment building and it's fenced off. Her shoes and socks were missing. Her bronze sweatshirt were torn and partially pulled off, and her pants were bloody. Her face was swollen and bloody, and she had a gash over her right eye. At the time of Eric Guaro's hearing, a month after the attack, Sherry York was still unconscious in the hospital. When the police questioned him later, Eric told them he had done some bar hopping after leaving his bartending job the previous night. He was driving home when he heard screaming coming from a car. He followed the car until it stopped and someone got out or came out from in front of it. Then he chased that person. He told police he chased the perpetrator 
instead of calling 911 because he thought if he could be the hero and save someone, it would make him look good at his firefighting job and maybe he'd get hired on full time. Peter Richard Jr., Eric Guaro's lawyer, argued that he wasn't a flight risk because he had to care for his two small sons during the day while his wife was at work. Mm. Prosecutor Elam said the opposite. One thing that really pissed me off about the reporting and continued to piss me off throughout the reporting of this crime is that in almost every article, the victim is described as, quote, a prostitute and drug user, end quote. What the fuck does this have to do with anything? This was not that long ago. It was nine years ago. It makes my blood boil that this poor young woman is almost dead with her head bashed in and they have to keep reminding everyone about her drug use and the fact that she's a sex worker. It does not matter. It might be of some interest but you don't have to every single time and it's just like in there like sure york is a prostitute and drug user oh my god every time i read it it pissed me off and i can tell you if somebody had brought it up nobody would have given a shit no shit stop calling him a fucking firefighter he's a fucking bartender right i'm just saying actually he's a woman beater but i guess well alleged yeah a few weeks later, Eric War was indicted by a grand jury on one count of Class A attempted murder, one count of Class A elevated aggravated assault, and one count of Class B aggravated assault. He ended up back in jail because he had violated conditions of his bail. He was supposed to not be out except at certain times specified by the court, like the time it takes from work to home, etc., He's still at his job as a bartender, apparently, although this wasn't clear due to the reporting only focusing on his firefighting job. <laughs> but I'm assuming he had, he didn't have his firefighting job, not that it was really a job, but he, he was still working. In any case, he was seen out when he was supposed to not be out, and his bail was revoked and he was back in jail. In December 2012, he filed a motion to amend his bail so he could go back home and help his wife care for their two sons, who were both under three years of age. His wife, Jennifer McDonald, told the court, quote, I need help taking care of them, and they miss their father. He was the primary caregiver to the baby in certain days of the week. Jennifer cried as she told the court that Eric, quote, was an excellent father. Eric sat in court in his orange jail duds, wiping his eyes also. Hmm. Prosecutor Meg Ellum told the court that the victim, Sherry York, had suffered brainstem damage, and though she was now conscious, quote, she still can't walk, she will undergo a surgery so she may be able to walk, end quote. Sherry's memory was damaged, and she couldn't remember the attack, so police hadn't been able to get any information from her. Eric's parents had posted $4,000 cash and his wife $10,000 for him to be out on bail. He hadn't been living in the same home with his wife after his release. She didn't want him there. According to the Press Herald, Eric had rented an apartment at 37 Smith Street in Portland, which the reporter neglects to mention is about 150 yards from where Sherry York was found Mm -hmm. crumpled on the ground. Seriously, Smith Street is just around the corner from Montgomery Street. It's kind of weird he was living in the same neighborhood where all the witnesses lived and where he beat someone almost to death. Or allegedly. (laughs) At the December hearing, Justice Joyce Wheeler, who we have been, she's starred in some of our our episodes before, kept his $50,000 cash bail, but added the requirement that Eric had to have a contract with the main pretrial services before he would be released from jail. Maine Pretrial Services is a nonprofit organization that helps defendants follow conditions of bail. It's meant for defendants who are not pleading guilty and will probably be out of jail in between arrest and trial. Sometimes pretrial services will make the defendant meet with somebody regularly 
to make sure they're following bail conditions. They'll help defendants with challenges such as work stuff, and they'll help present information to the judge on the defendant's behalf and stuff like that. Maine pretrial services didn't really think they wanted to take on Eric Guaro, though. The executive director, Elizabeth Simone, testified that the fact that his wife didn't want him living in the same house with her caused them pause. They also thought he was just too big a risk to take on. As Elizabeth told the court, quote, there would need to be a considerable change in circumstance, and I'm not sure what that would be, end quote. Daniel Lilly, uh, who, Dan had taken, Lilly. <laughs> who had taken on Eric Guara's case. Yes, Dan Lilly has starred in many of our episodes. It's the like Maine only has Dan. like like seven people in its justice system. <laughs> the late day, Dan. Well, Dan, Dan Lilly took on the big cases, and that's what we cover yep. usually, so. Dan Lilly argued that Justice Wheeler should order pretrial services to supervise his client. He said, the court felt this defendant was a candidate for release. I hope we don't get bogged down in our own procedure and deny this man his freedom. End quote. Mm. To which I would argue that Eric Guaro denied himself his freedom when he broke the court-ordered curfew. When you are out on bail, you are not free. You have to follow the rules. If you want to fuck around with the rules, you go back to jail. Exactly. Justice Wheeler did not order pretrial services to take on Eric. They are a totally independent entity from the court, and they make their own decisions, so he stayed in jail. Until July. This was November, I think. You said December. I'm sorry, December. So on July 22nd, 2013, jury selection began in the trial of Eric Guaro. Eric had pled not guilty to the four charges against him, attempted murder, elevated aggravated assault, aggravated assault and violating bail conditions. Justice Joyce Wheeler was the presiding judge. And here's a quote from an article in the Portland Press-Herald written by Scott Dolan. York, identified in court papers as a prostitute and drug user, was left in a coma long after the August 30th attack near Montgomery Street. Though she has recovered partially, she is not expected to fully recover, authorities have said previously, end quote. I just want to say about Scott Dolan, when I worked in New Hampshire... He was the Bedford Goffstown correspondent for a while. Yes, so I... and you had an affair with him? No. Oh, okay. I thought it was going to be something. Well, no, no. I, I just want to say, I he was a decent reporter, but I want to say even just, you know, less than 10 years ago, there were certain assumptions mm-hmm. that people made, and there were certain things that put in stories, and um, you can't only blame the reporters, you have to blame the no, editors. the editors as well, I do. Uh, yeah. And people who don't raise questions. But, of course, when you're an editor who does raise questions about things like that, sometimes <laughs> you're considered a pain in the ass. Not that I speak uh, from personal experience. Uh, the next day, the Press Her- Herald had an article about the trial, this one by Seth Koenig of the Bangor Daily News, um, which and we already talked about the fact that they shared... This article mentions Sherry York's facial and skull fractures, but also says York also has a criminal history. Less than a week before the incident, she was charged by Portland police with trafficking and dangerous knives and illegally carrying a concealed weapon. The previous December, Portland police arrested her on charges of engaging in prostitution, end quote. Maybe Again, she was carrying weapons because she, she worked a in a dangerous worker. trade. No shit. And, no and entitled shit. assholes could attack her and beat her up. 
I get that they were just reporting stuff, like I said, but they kept referring to the alleged attacker as a firefighter instead of a bartender and a family man with two young boys. Mm-hmm. Maybe Sherry had a family. Maybe she there was more to Sherry than her line of work and the fact that she did drugs. She's not the one who is out of her mind and attacks someone and beat them within an inch of her life now, is she? Just saying. No, she's not. Were any of any- the articles that you used written by women? No. Not that it would have made that much of a difference. The reporting does keep calling it a brutal attack, but still. Mm, Anyway, at Eric's trial, a resident of Montgomery Street, Craig McKenzie, testified that he called 911 when he was awakened by the sound of the attack in the early morning hours of August 30th, 2012, and stayed on the phone with the operator until he found Sherry York. Clifford Hethcoke testified that he heard a woman shouting, somebody help me, he's going to kill me. Clifford told the court, I jumped up and looked out the window. I seen what appeared to me to be a man, a dark man, assaulting a woman. At the time, I yelled out, what the F are you doing? He (laughs) yelled back, don't worry, she's just drunk. I'm helping her out. Clifford ran downstairs after seeing the attacker carrying the victim away. On the street, he met his neighbor, Craig McKenzie, and the two went into the alley and found Sherry York on the ground. Clifford told the court her face had just looked a mess. When Dan Lilly cross-examined Clifford, he said, you didn't see anything, did you? and brought up the fact that Clifford has spent time in prison. Mm. Clifford said he was being truthful, even though he hadn't wanted to testify or have anything to do with the case. Sherry York had been in the hospital, mostly unconscious, for six weeks after she was assaulted. She was then transferred to New England Rehabilitation Hospital, where she had to learn how to walk, feed, and dress herself again. Then she went to River Ridge Center in Kennebunk for more rehabilitation. She was finally released to her parents on May 23, 2013, so it took her almost nine months just to be able not to be in a hospital. And even then, she had to live with her parents because she couldn't live on her own. In his opening statement, Dan Lilly told the court that his client did hit Sherry York, but never intended to kill her. They were not contesting the violation of conditions of release charge and the aggravated assault charge, but they were rejecting the elevated aggravated assault and attempted murder charges. Dan Lilly said there's a whale of difference between attempting to murder someone and aggravated assault. To which I say, really, Dan, is there really that much of a difference? When you're beating someone against the head against the fucking ground. And and stomping on their head. So how much in control are you that you would know when to stop that you're not going to kill the person? It'll make you even more. As we go on, it's going to make you more angry, I'm sure. And I want to say now, because I don't think I say it later, but I'm going to say it now. And no part of this whole thing and all the reporting and everything everyone is just taking at face value the story not the whole story because obviously eric guara lied about chasing the perpetrator Mm -hmm. but his story about what really happened Mm -hmm. to cause him to attack her everyone's taking it at face value and i want to talk about it at the end what i think really happened and i'm sure you'll have your own um, idea. The defense's story was that Sherry York propositioned Eric Guaro with sex for money after getting into his car. He said no. Sherry then grabbed $20 from the center console. Actually, at first they just say she grabbed some cash, but it was $20. From the center console, jumped out of the car and ran off. Eric Guaro became, quote, enraged by the theft. And the prosecutor's opening statement, Meg Ellum told the jury he kicked her and stomped her until she was lifeless and then hid the body. Hannah Emery was working at the Preble Street Resource Center, a place that provides services for the poor and homeless, the night Sherry was assaulted. At about 2 a.m., she saw Eric Waro stumble out of his car, walk around the corner, and walk back, zipping up his jeans. Hmm. 
He left after she confronted him. She called the police because, as she told the court, he looked, quote, really drunk, and she saw him get in a car and, and drive away. So she was concerned that this drunk guy was driving, so she called them. Mm-hmm. Police pulled Eric over on Cumberland Avenue shortly after Hannah's call. To them, he didn't appear drunk. Hmm. He's just another guy like them, you know. His shirt was a different color than what Hannah had reported, so they let him go. The same officer, Portland Police Officer Michael Gialetta, responded to the call about Sherry York's assault. When he arrived, he recognized Eric as the guy he had pulled over earlier. The clerk from the Big Apple store, Michael Clark, testified. He had seen Sherry at the store and saw her drive off in the maroon car. When Sherry returned about a half hour later, she came into the store. Her face was red and puffy, and she had a bloody $20 bill. She went back outside, and the video, which was shown in court, showed her being dragged around the parking lot by a man shortly after that. The second day of trial, Megan Townsend testified. She told the court that initially she didn't want to cooperate with the police, even though she was an eyewitness. But then she decided to visit Sherry York at the hospital. As Megan said, I needed something to give me strength to do the right thing. Megan Townsend, then known as Megan Likerman, was asleep in her fourth-floor apartment on Montgomery Street when she was awakened by her partner, Ryan Townsend, who later became her husband. The two looked out the window and saw what Megan described as a black man punching someone two or three times. The man's body was blocking the view of the person he was hitting, so Megan couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman at first. Until the man began kicking the victim, Megan said, quote, I saw when he sidestepped to deliver what I would call football kicks. I saw her long hair go back. I saw him rise his knee up and stomp her in the head. Her head was bouncing off the pavement, end quote. Megan told Ryan to go down there and help the woman. I'll have to say these neighbors, people can put them down because they, you know, didn't live in the great part of town and they had criminal records, but they all went down and tried to help her. Um, Ryan went down to the street while Megan watched from the window. She saw the man picked up the woman and carry her to the alley. Quote, she was lifeless. When Dan Lilly challenged Megan about why she was reluctant to help out the police, she said she didn't want to be called a rat. She said, I've been told things happen and sometimes bodies disappear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when people rat people out in her neighborhood. Dan Lilly also reminded Megan that she didn't mention the kicking and stomping in her pretrial statements. He brought up Megan's past brushes with the law. He said, you've been accused of a crime of dishonesty, correct? Megan said, yes, a misdemeanor, negotiating a worthless instrument. Lily said, are you being honest here today? And Megan said, yes. Like, what's she going to say? Oh, no, I'm not yeah, really. No, I'm so, lying. You got me. Megan's sister-in-law, Wendy Townsend, who also lived in the building with her boyfriend, Clifford Hethcote, said she also saw the man pick up the limp body and carry it away. Both couples, Megan and Ryan and Wendy and Clifford, were afraid of the repercussions of cooperating with police. Two of the witnesses who testified were cab drivers. Abel Britton was driving near the intersection of Cumberland and Washington Avenues around 3 a.m. He saw a black man carrying a white woman when his taxi turned on Cumberland Avenue. Abel said, she was screaming. It was definitely not a good thing. I actually called the police. <laughs> According to Abel Britton, the man was yelling, I want my money. Give me my money. The other taxi driver who testified was Brock Mantle. He saw Sherry York looking, quote, upset with a puffy face, end quote, that early morning when she tried to flag him down. 
He didn't stop because he already had a fare. He found out about the attack later when he stopped at the Big Apple store. Brock Mantle knew Sherry York. He knew she was a sex worker because she had offered him sex for a ride in the past, which he had accepted. Another person who testified was Charles Bunting. He met Eric Guaro at the bar Sticks on Middle Street in Portland. Charles and Eric started talking and exchanged phone numbers. Charles told the court he was on the rocks with his wife out on the town. At one point, I did let him know that he was in an alternative bar. He mentioned he was primarily interested in women. And that's why I remembered the story. I remembered about the story that the guy was in Sticks, which was a, is a gay bar. Right, it's, right. it's out of business now. And didn't seem to realize it because he was so drunk that mm. you think he'd wonder why aren't there many women in here mm. but he didn't seem to bother him maybe either. he thought it was a sports bar yeah that could be the two men left sticks and went to the club asylum not far away on center street right across where you used to work yeah now right? it's called um aura it's called yeah, aura yeah, now yeah, yeah. that's right, right. I forgot. Uh, yeah it's right across free street from our office. it used to be the uh, art it used to be the art gallery restaurant, I remember, when yeah. I was in high school. To Binga's Stadium on Free Street, a sports bar. Charles told the court that Eric seemed to be in good mood, ready to party. Quote, he came up the stairs, having been downstairs for a half an hour or so. I saw him go up to just about every woman in the crowd and say something. Hmm. Charles went home after last call, but he and Eric kept texting. Wow, that's a real bromance that I know. they formed, isn't Char- it? Well, I'm assuming Charles is gay because he was in sticks, so yeah. maybe he figured what the hell. Charles got the last text from Eric at about 2 a.m. The jury watched part of the video of Eric Guaro's police interrogation and was going to watch the rest the next day. In the video, sounds like the police were using the read technique, which mm-hmm. we've discussed in other episodes. Officer Scott Dunham said to Eric, We know what you've told us isn't exactly true. And then he gave Eric a chance to, quote, come clean. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Prosecutors claimed Eric was not drunk at all when he committed the crime. I guess to say he knew what he was, they don't really want him to be super drunk, but, you know, whatever. The defense said he was drunk, and it clouded his judgment. Charles Bunting, his drinking buddy, said he didn't seem that drunk. But Hannah Emery at the Preble Street Center thought he seemed pretty wasted. And I will say that Hannah saw him later, so it could have right. hit him later. right. The next day, Eric's wife, Jennifer McDonald, testified that her husband was drunk the night he attacked Sherry York. She was testifying for the defense. Jennifer spoke to Eric on the phone around 2 a.m. that morning. She knew he was drunk because he was slurring and being a dick about not being home. Also, Hmm. his text messages weren't making sense. Hmm. She said, normally he's extremely polite and caring and often funny and lighthearted. When he's intoxicated, he's much less polite, is short, and says things he would not normally say if he was sober. She told the jury her husband had a problem with binge drinking. Quote, he would drink excessively and not know when to stop. Prosecutor Meg Ellum said to Jennifer, Maybe he was just lying to you. Did you ever consider that? So the prosecution was trying to say that Eric Guaro had enough sense to pretend to be drunk to his wife so it looked like he didn't know what he was doing when he attacked Sherry York. Okay, Meg, that makes sense. Why would he be lying about being super drunk to his wife? Defense attorney Daniel Lilly moved to dismiss the two most serious charges. 
Dan Lilly told the court that the language of the two more serious charges, elevated, aggravated assault, and attempted murder, was very specific, and the actions of his client, Eric Guaro, did not fit into those descriptions. Elevated, aggravated assault has to involve a dangerous weapon. Daniel Lilly told the court, Mr. Guaro used his fist to cause serious injury to this woman. Fists are not considered a dangerous weapon by main hmm. law. And I'm like, why? Yeah. Matt has to tell us. The law doesn't list them as dangerous weapons. I mean, they yes, are dangerous I mean, weapons, yes. but you need somebody to yes, pass the law. The law needs says, to change. Exactly. And, and you can just see the argument against yeah. it. Not that I support it. Well, everybody has hands. Everybody uses I their know. hands. You know, this could oh, get into yeah. this, the territory where people are getting Yeah, if you get slapped charge. across the site, yeah, right. whatever. And even if Eric had kicked Sherry, he was wearing canvas sneakers, not heavy boots or shoes. The attempted murder charge was from the kicking and stomping allegations, not punching. Lily said, a shod foot is not a dangerous weapon. And I say, well, it should be. But, mm-hmm. you know. Dan Lilly also said, it's clear from the evidence that his goal was to collect money, not kill her. Give me a fucking break. Um, I'm sorry. He beat the ever-loving shit out of this poor woman over $20. When does it go from collecting money to trying to kill her? And I also, as you said earlier, I I question that oh, we yeah. can talk yeah, about we'll it talk later. Her. Yes. I question the when, motive. When you drag her across a parking lot, beat her, never mind if kicking or stomping was involved, until she's unconscious and throw her in an alley, how is that not trying to kill somebody and that's just collecting money? I mean, come on. Prosecutor Meg Ellum said the jury should decide whether or not those charges should remain. The judge said she'd make a ruling the next day, and she ended up not dismissing those charges. They still stood. Joseph Thornton, a private investigator hired by the defense, took the stand the next day. Joseph said when he interviewed Clifford Hethcote, there was no mention of kicking or stomping. Quote, He said he observed no kicking. I'm sure he didn't say, I observed no kicking, but whatever. He told me he couldn't identify the person, but a dark-skinned man was punching. When Clifford had testified earlier, he told Dan Lilly that he, quote, held back when talking to the private eye. Of Megan and Ryan Townsend, Joseph Thornton said, both refused to talk to me, saying they didn't want to help the guy I was representing. They told me they wanted to see him go away for a long time. The court also viewed more of the police interview with Eric Guaro. Eric told Detective Scott Dunham that he, Eric, wasn't the attacker. The real attacker was a black man wearing identical clothing to himself. Eric wanted to be the one to catch the guy, quote, I was trying to be a hero, end quote. Yes, this sounds like a story the police would believe. Sure, he wasn't drunk when he thought this up. Come on. I mean, so, so, yeah, and two I, black guys wearing the exact same clothes in Portland, Maine. Um, I know, I know. In that I neighborhood, know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. At three in the morning. I can see it. There was physical evidence linking Eric to Sherry's assault. His jeans, sneakers, and the two t-shirts he wore that night had Sherry's blood on them. Portland Police Evidence Technician Victor Cody testified that Sherry's blood was found inside both of Eric's sneakers and on the toe of his right sneaker, but he couldn't say for sure whether the injuries were caused by someone's feet or hands. On the last day of testimony, Eric Guaro took the stand in his own defense. Mm. He said that yes... He punched Sherry York with enough force to knock her to the ground, but he did it because she stole money from him. He wasn't trying to kill her, nor did he stomp or kick her. He told the jury that he had rejected Sherry's offer of sex for money, and he was, quote, definitely drunk when he attacked her, 
angry about her stealing money from him. Again, $20. Eric told the court about his night of drinking on August 29, 2012, leading into the morning of August 30th. He left his bartending shift at the Inn by the Sea in Cape Elizabeth. The Press Herald article did not say what time, and I would love like to know what time his shift got over. Eric's first stop was at the Springport Tavern in South Portland, where he had a pitcher of beer. Then he drove to Portland to San, San Gio's Tavern, which is now Tomasino's Tavern, where he had two beers and a shot of whiskey. Eric said, after that, it gets fuzzy. I started to lose track of time. So he's had a pitcher of beer and then two beers and a shot of whiskey so far. He so said he, he vis- says... So he says. I don't know how he remember. Then he visited three more bars in the old... The only thing I can think of, too, is he might have had receipts. So, Or the bars well, might have had receipts. I would remember because I would remember what I what I paid. Like, if you, if you don't have a lot of money, oh, that, you know? That's true. Yes. But. He said he visited three more bars in the old port, drinking four more beers and a shot of whiskey at three other bars before closing time. Now, it seems like... The last three bars are the ones that Charles Bunting had talked about in his testimony. Eric didn't remember where he found his car, but he remembered stopping at the Big Apple on Washington Avenue to get gas. That's where he met Sherry York. Eric said he invited Sherry to join him for drinks at a friend's house, and she got in the car. Okay, I have a question. If I were Meg Ellum, I would have asked, so who is the friend whose yes. house you were inviting Sherry to? Yes. Was there really a friend? If not, what did you plan to do? Right. What did you think the situation was? Why do you think this woman would approach you and get in your car if she wasn't on the job? I mean, right. come on. I was going to say, or when you first mentioned it earlier, there is no way he didn't know, and he was asking a sex worker to get in the car for a reason. I know, and we'll talk about that after, because yeah. I've, I've got my theories about this. Yeah, I do anyway, too. back to Eric's testimony. Quote, she said, if your friend is going to be there, he's going to have to pay too. All of a sudden, it dawned on me. I think she thinks I picked her up to pay for sex. Duh, Eric. By the way, I have my own theory, like I said, and I will discuss it later. Eric said that he rejected the offer, and Sherry grabbed some cash from the center console and got out of the car. I don't see that happening. Quote, I recall being shocked, angry, embarrassed, and confused, so I started to drive around (laughs) trying to find her. I tried to grab her, but it happened too quick, end quote. He went back to the Big Apple and saw her standing by the corner. She started to run when she saw him, Eric testified. Quote, I remember grabbing her by the back of her shirt and pulling her away from the Big Apple. I pulled her over to the Cumberland Avenue garage, and I asked her where my money was, end quote. When Sherry told him she didn't have his money, Eric said, he punched her twice. She fell to the ground. He picked her up and punched her again. Eric said he didn't remember what happened after the first three punches, but he couldn't have stopped Sherry because, quote, that's not the person that I know I am. (laughs) Eric cried when Dan Lilly asked him about his family and his two young sons. Boo fucking who? Mm Mm-hmm. When Meg Ellum cross-examined Eric, she made punching gestures and said, That night you walloped her a couple of times. Yes, I did, Eric (laughs) said. Meg Ellum showed the video where it appears a man is dragging a woman by the hair. He says he dragged her by the back of the shirt. I think he probably was dragging her by the hair, but hell. So I think his lawyers are like, you could be dragging her by the back of the shirt, right? And he probably said, yeah, that's probably what I was doing. Because in the picture, it looks like he's grabbing her hair. I just saw a still of the video, and even just a still is like, ugh. There are a lot of disrespectful ways 
to treat a woman. But I think that is one of the things that just shows absolute total disrespect and disregard for her as a human being to drag her by the hair. Exactly. Meg Ellum asked Eric if that was him on the video, and he answered, I was pulling her by the back of her shirt. I wanted my money back. In her closing arguments, Meg Ellum stomped her foot three times and said, I know that if I stomp on the head of someone lying on the pavement, I can kill them. That I know. Daniel Lilly, in his closing arguments, brought up the criminal past of several of the witnesses and said that there is no way they could have seen what they saw from the fourth floor in the dark. Also, Eric Guara was too drunk to decide to kill someone. He didn't stomp or kick the victim. He only punched her to get his money. The jury of five men and seven women took less than two hours to come to a verdict. They deliberated for 45 minutes on Friday and then an hour on Monday, July 29th. They found Eric Guaro not guilty of attempted murder, but guilty of the other three charges, elevated aggravated assault, aggravated assault, and violation of bail conditions. The two assault crimes could have gotten Eric up to 30 years in prison, but Dan Lilly told the Press Herald the maximum sentence could be 30 years, but it won't be, I assure you. Mm. We believe the elevated aggravated assault conviction is very flawed. We feel it will be reversed, end quote. One thing that bugs me about the coverage, or maybe just in the trial itself, though I don't have the transcripts, I don't know all that went on, they mentioned the blood on Eric Guaro's clothes that had Cherry's DNA, and they had that guy testify. And the case has a lot of eyewitness testimony also, but I didn't read anything about physical evidence of Sherry York's injuries. An admittedly drunk Eric Guaro claims he punched her a few times. Regardless of whether or not anyone saw him stomp her, what did the injuries show? Clearly, she was much more injured than somebody who was just punched she had lasting brain damage she had fractured skull and her face bones were fractured apparently there was no medical expert testifying which i don't understand unless Um, there was just a story that no it doesn't seem like it because based on this quote from dan Lilly, we think the charge elevated aggravated assault he's talking about we think the charge has a 50 50 chance of being flipped on appeal we think without expert testimony you can't tell those injuries were caused by a shot foot so there was not any and what the fuck prosecution yeah really i mean i don't understand that Dan Lilly said he would file for an appeal after sentencing. Of the verdict, he said, even though it's a mixed bag, we think it's mixed in our favor. Sherry York's family attended court every day of the trial, but didn't comment to reporters who asked. Justice Wheeler said she wanted Eric Guaro to have a forensic analysis before she sentenced him. Though he had already been examined before his trial, she wanted him to be analyzed once more. She said, there is a question of whether intoxication plays a factor in his behavior or if he simply lost it. Eric Guaro remained in jail pending his sentencing, which didn't take place until January of 2014. On Monday, January 6, 2014, Eric Guaro was sentenced to 20 years with all but eight suspended for one count of Class A elevated aggravated assault. Eric got a concurrent sentence of eight years for aggravated assault and a concurrent sentence of six months for Class A violation of bail conditions. He got four years of probation on his release from prison. He was also ordered to pay Sherry York restitution of $5,632.29 for expenses her family incurred during her recovery, which honestly, I can't believe it wasn't more money. What the hell would that cover? I don't know. I thought that was weird. He was ordered to do 100 hours of community service with people 
with disabilities. Justice Joyce Wheeler said that it was hard to come up with what she thought was a fair sentence after hearing both the eyewitness testimony about the attack, along with friends and family members describing Eric as a great dad, college-educated guy who was trying to hide his alcoholism. Hmm. Quote, my sentence is based on an attempt to punish and encourage rehabilitation. The sentence I'm going to impose will probably seem too lenient to the York family and too harsh to your family, end quote. Sherry York's mother spoke at the sentencing hearing, telling about how she was called to Maine Medical Center after her daughter was attacked. She couldn't identify her except by her curly hair. Quote, she was beaten so bad I didn't recognize my own daughter. Sherry did not attend the sentencing. Michelle told the court that Sherry didn't have control over her body functions. She walked with a limp. She trembled and had slurred speech. She had angry outbursts and had tried to kill herself several times. Mm. Michelle said she'd said she'd rather be dead than go on living like this. Oh, and finally someone reported that Sherry herself has a child, a three-year-old son, that Michelle had to help raise after the attack. Much was made about the fact that Eric Guara was the father of two boys, but no one thought to mention that the victim was also a parent, the mm. mother of a toddler. At his sentencing, Eric Guara, wearing a light gray suit and tie, speaking from a written note, said, I'm sorry for all the distress I have caused the York family and my family. I'm truly appalled at the way I treated her that night. I just pray that one day the York family can forgive me. I can assure everyone that I will never ever behave in such a fashion again. Being in this jail has opened my eyes to the fact that I am truly an alcoholic. Hmm. End quote. Prosecutor Meg Ellen wasn't too sympathetic to Eric. She said, Sherry will never be the same. When I heard Mr. Guaro's testimony, I thought it was the most concocted pile of lies I had ever <laughs> heard from a defendant in a long time. And I say, me too, sister. Yeah. Dan Lilly and Tina Nato, Eric's lawyers, wanted a two-year sentence with four years probation, arguing that their client needed help with his alcoholism more than he needed to be punished. Hmm. In 2016, there was a poorly written article in Sky oh. News that had the headline, Meet the Civic-Minded U.S. Prison Inmates Ready to Vote in the Election. And Sky News is a British yeah. news service. I was going to say, God, that sounds like it's written by some bot or something, that headline. The article is about, they had a little picture of some blonde woman who is the reporter. The article is about prisoners at the Maine State Prison. Maine and Vermont are the only two states in which prisoners are allowed to cast ballots. This article was about the efforts of NAACP activist Rachel Talbot Ross, who has made it her mission to make sure prisoners can exercise their right to vote. She's a state rep. Yes, she is a state rep, and her father was a well-known activist in Portland. Yeah. The article talked to a group of male prisoners at the Maine State Prison in Warren. There were 11 of them. Nine said they'd vote for Clinton, and two said Trump. Of those two, one was... <laughs> I should laugh. Of those two... No, it wasn't Eric Warrow. Oh. Of those two, one was black. The article doesn't say if it was Eric Warrow, and that's not what I was uh, oh, going okay. with that. One of the other prisoners said to the black Trump supporter, you could join that other black guy at his rally. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Rachel Talbot Ross told the reporter that a friend of hers who lost a child to murder wouldn't speak to her anymore. Rachel said, it's hard to tell someone who's lost someone who's been a victim of a crime to think about the humanity of the person who's committed that crime. I have to separate the crime from the person because I do believe in the rehabilitative process. Here's a quote from the article. 
Eric Guaro, 31, was described in court as a model father and family member, a caring, college-educated former kindergarten teacher and volunteer Mm. firefighter. He brutally attacked a woman, leaving her permanently injured. He says his battle with alcoholism led him to commit that terrible act that put him in prison for eight years. He said, just because I made one bad choice one day doesn't mean that I don't have a voice and that I'm not smart and that I don't know what would be good for this country. Mm. In 2017, Sherry York sued CN Brown, which is the company that owns the Big Apple chain, claiming they were negligent. That had their employee been better trained, he would have called the police when he saw Sherry was injured and in distress when she returned to the store prior to being attacked. I don't even think you need to be fucking trained to know that. No shit. Common sense. CM Brown filed a motion to dismiss and it was granted. They said it wasn't their responsibility. But yeah, what's the guy's problem? If I, if I mean, maybe he was just sick of all, you know, working the night shift and all these people coming in and out. Mm Because frankly, that, that's pretty busy yeah, store yeah. with a lot of sketchy people. But still, the poor woman, she's obviously in distress and she's got, already got blood on her. When I started researching this story, I looked on newspapers.com to see what I could find about Eric Guaro. Surprisingly, none of the stories I ultimately used showed up, but I think it seems like the stories end at 2011. Yeah, they do. Have yes. you noticed that? That's what, So that's why, yeah. duh. Interestingly enough... There was a story from October 15th, 2009 in the Montclair, New Jersey Times. It's short, so I will read it to you. A 25-year-old West Orange man got drunk during an unsanctioned sleepover and barged into the bedroom of his friend's mother, who thought he was a burglar and called police, law enforcement officials said. A friend invited Eric Guaro and two other men who were not identified to his Gates Avenue house without telling his mother, and the woman panicked when Guaro, who appeared, quote, highly intoxicated, entered her bedroom at 3.40 a.m. Friday, October 9th, according to police. Responding officers told Guaro and the two other guests to wait outside while the complainant was interviewed, police said. The woman told officers she wanted the men removed from the premises, but instead of waiting, the trio boarded a 1999 Toyota Camry and began driving away, but officers saw them trying to leave and ordered them to halt, according to authorities. After Guaro failed sobriety tests, he was arrested and charged with DWI, not wearing his seatbelt, having car windows that were overly tinted, and having having a cracked windshield that obstructed his view, police said. That was 2009, so he clearly had some issues. That so wasn't he didn't a learn his one-time lesson. thing. No. Yeah. It makes me wonder about other things he did while he was drunk. And I wasn't sure if it was the same guy, but it was because he went to, he said age is right, and he went to, he graduated from college in Patterson, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Before I'm finished, I just want to tell you my theory of what happened, and you can tell me yours, and okay. I'm sure it's the same. I think that maybe Eric was too drunk and or dumb to figure out that Sherry was a sex worker, or maybe he's just, an, you know, he did know, but I think that something did happen between them because it was like a half an hour. She didn't just jump out, like he said, and he didn't want to pay. Mm -hmm. either because he thought she wasn't doing it for work or he just didn't want to pay her and she wanted to be paid so she took 20 bucks and took off no matter what the circumstances though nothing justifies what he did to that poor woman and i think attempted murder law should be rewritten because i don't 
think it should require a weapon if you're strangling somebody until they pass out or something, mm-hmm. you know. Also, Eric is now out of prison, so I hope he stays away from alcohol. I hope Sherry is doing well and is coping with the effects of her injuries. And I know what her mom said at the sentencing, but that was less than a year later. And I think she is probably doing better now, and I wish the best for her. My theory is that he knew she was a sex worker when he picked her up. Drunk or not drunk. Maybe he was really drunk, but I think it sounds like he was a pretty high-functioning alcoholic if he was he wasn't like stumbling and unable to stand and walk and stuff i don't understand why anyone would think he didn't know she was a sex worker why else would he pick her up he picked her up because she was a sex worker she gave him a blowjob or whatever then he didn't want to pay her that's what i'm thinking so she took the money that's what i think so she took the money or something else happened that pissed him off. Well, maybe he wanted to do something she didn't want to do, or maybe he wanted a freebie after the one he paid for. Something happened. Something happened that went beyond what his bullshit story was. And I also agree with you that it doesn't matter if she did take the 20 bucks. If you want your 20 bucks back, go and ask for your 20 bucks back or whatever. And if she won't give it back, then you call the police or something if it's that important to you. But it doesn't give you a right to beat the living shit out of somebody. I know. And it seems to me there were plenty of opportunities while he was dragging her around and kicking her and beating her up and everything. He could have gotten his $20 and he no didn't. Shit. So. Well, the other thing I wanted to say is it wasn't in his testimony that they reported, but the reporters reported that he found her attractive and was hoping they could have a romantic encounter or something like that. Like, so he wanted it, like, to have free sex with her. Yeah. I think also the other theory I have, it's not another theory, it's actually more up to my theory, is that he was drunk. Something might have been attempted and, and didn't wasn't happen, able to right. happen. And so he didn't want to give the money. And she's like, tough shit. I, right. I, the time is right. money. There are many scenarios that could possibly have happened. The one he said happened didn't, and I also it's think it's such bullshit. And I also think he did know she was a sex worker. Of course, um, he knew at three and, in the morning. Why else he, would she be hanging around them? But there? he had to say he didn't to make his story work and to look more sympathetic. And the whole euphemism of romantic encounter. The only reason you would pick a girl up on the street at three in the morning, whether she's a sex worker or not, is to have sex with her. I know. So just and say I- have sex. He don't want a romantic encounter. He wanted to have sex with someone no or get a blowjob from someone. Also, and this is a very minor thing, but just piqued my curiosity, and I guess there could be a lot of reasons for it. Did anyone ever ask why he had two different shirts? No, I found that interesting, You too. know, and it could be just, you know, he had his gym clothes. He had clothes one in the car or, or something, yeah. Or he had a, one he wore as a bartender and one he changed into afterwards or something. But I just think it's interesting that he had a change of clothes, and whatever else happened, he had the presence of mind I know. to change those clothes. It which tells me he had enough thought process you know and i'm sure that he had his issues with cops he's he's black yeah i'm sure the cops treat him like shit they were pretty nice to him that night if he had been stopped for drunk driving which he should have been they could have given him a breathalyzer i don't know why they didn't unless maybe because it was close to the change of shift when we used to go out drinking after work at the newspaper i worked at new hampshire it was a bar that cops used to go to too and they always said 
and now this isn't all cops, this is just these ones I knew, that the closer it got to the end of their shift, the less likely you were to get pulled over because they didn't want to have to stay and do the paperwork. Yeah. They wanted yeah. to leave so they could go to the bar and drink or whatever. So, but what made you do that story? I was just thinking about it the other day when I was stopped at the light and I was looked over on Montgomery Street and I'm like, oh, remember that? And I thought she had been killed. I was like, remember that woman that got beaten to death there? Yeah. I'll send you some pictures of the street. It's still a pretty gross street. It's a gross yeah, building. Yeah, I'll put them up on the website. Um, yeah. Which I, is refreshing. It is um, refreshing because Washington Street is now gentrifying. Ave. I always get mixed up whether it's Ave or Street. It says Ave. It's Ave. Washington yes, Ave is Ave. this hip eatery, drinkery, distillery mm-hmm. place and all this stuff. Not that that's not good for Portland. I go to the Big Apple almost every day to get my Diet Cokes. But, yeah, and um, when I get... Sometimes I get up, I have to go pick up Hannah at five in the morning because of her father's uh, work yeah, schedule. Right. And there's five in the morning at that Big Apple, although it doesn't open now till six, but there's still all the poor guys, the homeless guys that are hanging around there. And like, even during when I go in, like the girl that's the uh, manager, but she, it can't be an easy job. I mean, no. and I'm sure if you're working the night shift, you just don't want to deal with some of the drama when they used to be open 24 hours a day. But still, like, have some pity. I mean, if someone came in, I don't care what their job, I don't care who it is. She obviously had been beaten. Something happened to her before she got beaten, right. and they didn't really... That wasn't really... Although, um, you know, the clerk, it may he may have just been a guy, and he wasn't interested. Yeah. You know? It wasn't his problem. Aww. You know? It's not like he maybe didn't recognize there wasn't something going on there, but maybe he just didn't give a shit. Yeah. But anyway... Well, thank if, you. If it had me, I probably would have called, the, not just because I would have felt bad for her, but also because I, I would have been bored and it would have been some yeah, drama. Yeah, some exciting drama. But, yeah. but, well, you're welcome. I hope yeah. you enjoyed it. I did. And it was something that you hadn't heard before. And, and now I have a recommendation. Ooh! <laughs> Not to, like, qualify why I did this, but... Um, Because it's going to get to a point where every NNW rating of this type of true crime (laughs) documentary show is just going to sound the same, so why even do them? But I guess we haven't got to that point yet. And I didn't want to, I know you're watching Mayor of Eastham, which I want to watch and stuff, but I was not in a mood where, like, if I watch something like that, I want to watch it to enjoy it. I don't want to have to, like, take notes. Yes, exactly. And I wasn't in a mood to use much of my brain last night. So I went on. Uh oh. HBO. What? Oh, no, I think you didn't want to use your brain. So that I was just wondering what that meant. Like, what you'll kind of find show out. It was. Uh, yes. You'll find okay. out. Where they have the trio of Vengeance series, they had Vengeance Killer Co workers, Vengeance Killer Lovers, mm-hmm. and I chose Vengeance Killer Neighbors. Oh, I haven't seen any. I didn't see any. Well, then it had one season that was made in 2019 with 10 episodes. I watched five. So I feel that I am qualified (laughs) to give an NNW rating. Okay. And it is pretty much, as far as content, what you would think. But I do want to say that there's a a weird sameness and that I noticed by the fifth one, they all are like lower middle class and they all live in either most of them live in like ranch houses ranch style houses not like real nice ones but Mm -hmm. more 
like m- mid-century kind of cobbled together ones or mobile homes. Mm-hmm. It was just strange, but I'll get to more. <laughs> there were some, lots of similarities. Um, surveillance cameras play a big part. And uh, But anyway, okay, bad reenactments. This may not surprise you, but I'm taking away a point. Hmm. The big thing is they're the typical reenactments that this type of true crime series has. The thing that annoys me the most is not that they're bad, which they are, but they have them unnecessarily. There are times, yeah, okay, you're using them. But there was like one where where somebody who who's a victim or a family member of a victim is telling a compelling <laughs> story. Stay on them. You don't need to like show... Uh, have a reenactment of the cop telling her her daughter was killed. I know, I don't understand. You know, when you have this woman talking about the cop telling her her daughter was killed, I find it's more compelling to see the person talking about it than to have a reenactment of a cop telling a middle-aged woman something, you know, and it's like there's no audio because the woman herself is talking. The reenactments are exactly what you thought. There's too many. Um, They're bad and they're unnecessary for the most part. So I'm taking away a point. Okay. Narrative cliches, I'm taking away a point. Oh my gosh. Okay. Put it this way. There's a narrator, so you're going to have some on these anyway. But also, as we've said before, the editors of the show are responsible for what they have people, what clips they use when they're interviewing people. And one guy actually said, and here, let me see. I wrote this down, so I wouldn't forget it. This is an actual quote. The straw that broke the camel's back on this Hatfield and McCoy story, it was a perfect storm. (laughs) And I get sick of this phrase, which I'm hearing more. In a surprising move, the defendant testified in his own defense. Like, every single time the guy testifies in his own defense, and they all are guys, by the way, it's a surprising move and stuff. So I'm taking away a point on that. Okay. So far, three for three. Oh. No, there's only been two. Oh. (laughs) are you even listening i was marking your points down because you you never keep track and i thought i had marked hadn't marked okay what's what's the next one racial gender obtuseness i'm gonna take away half a point and it's not because of anything they do but they don't do everybody is white now if if i were a person of color I don't know that I would want to be represented on this show. Um, <laughs> that said, when you're doing all your bad reenactments, you know, have a cop be black or something. The I only know. out of five of them, the only person of color, one of the cops, the real cop, not a reenactment one, was Asian. I think it says something about these types of crimes that all that everybody is white. But I'm taking away half a point just because there are chances to get to be more representative. Uh-huh. In their reenactments, if they're going to have them, and they aren't, so I'm taking okay. away. Lack of good visuals. I will not take away any points because they they do like a lot of these shows seem to have more trouble than the higher level shows of getting crime scene photos and stuff. And some of them you can't even friggin' tell what they are. But the nature of these crimes is often. One neighbor is just an obsessive nut job and has video, ends up with video cameras. There's one where the neighbors um, just video 
the poor people across the street every single friggin' time they come oh my out of their God. house and stuff. And that's one thing, too, I want to go back to the narrative cliche, and maybe I'll talk about it a little more in another category, too, is that this isn't, oh, Hatfields and McCoys, these people just can't get along. In every single case, there's someone who is just a fucking nut who becomes obsessed with his neighbor and it's always it's always a guy although they all have supportive wives apparently or almost all of them and almost all of them except for the last one i saw it's the nut job who's obsessed who kills the more innocent person and I'll talk a little more about that in storytelling. So there's a lot of video. Actually, I'm going to take away half a point because it's hard to tell what they're showing sometimes, and they don't do a good job of explaining it. So I'm taking away half a point for that. Okay. Missing pieces. Oh, and I also want to say, um, and I'll get to missing pieces in a second on the on the visuals too. For instance, there was one, and they kept showing a house. It wasn't clear whose house it was. And this was the one that one that took place in California, and it was one of those California neighborhoods where the streets are all windy and the houses are, like, all on top of each other and stuff. They're all, like, little ranch houses, mm-hmm. but they're all, like... And it was hard to tell what the kind of layout was anyway, and so they kept showing this one house, and you didn't know if it was the good neighbor's house or the bad neighbor's house, which I found um, oh. annoying. Yeah. So that's visuals. But anyway, missing pieces I am going to take away... A point, because there were little missing pieces that sometimes made it hard to understand what was going on. But the biggest missing piece to me is that there are obviously mental health angles to these stories that they don't explore, except for the last one I watched where the poor guy, the neighbors just harassed the living shit out of him and he had PTSD and had a brain injury from an accident he had when he was in the military and they just would not fucking leave him alone and he finally got his gun one night when they were having a party and screaming obscenities at him and stuff and went over and shot a few of them. But the other ones, there is not One mention in the first four that I watched of there's no context from someone who could talk about the kind of mental health issues that would lead these obsessed guys to, for instance, in one of them, uh, when I say good neighbor and bad neighbor, it's just to differentiate who I'm talking about. (laughs) But the good neighbor had put, this was in Minnesota, had put a deer feeder on a tree in front of his house so that deer would come eat and um the deer so the deer would come to the yard they seem to and this is another kind of unclear missing piece they seem to have had issues before it's hard to understand the timeline but the guy across the street who already seemed like he was obsessed and had issues with the guy got lyme disease and he blamed Uh the fact that the guy had the deer feeder and wanted him to get rid of the deer feeder i think he just didn't like the deer feeder but the thing is there are deer around it's not those deer walking through your yard that you're getting Lyme disease from. It's the ticks, and they're around. They're they're not, you know, it doesn't matter if the deer are, yeah, are walking exactly. through your yard or not. Before he ended up shooting the guy with mm. the deer feeder, he left, like, dead animal parts in their yard yeah. and stuff. But, but nobody's talking about, they kind of take at face value, oh, he was upset because he got Lyme disease because of the deer, and it pissed him off, and so he ended up shooting the guy and and it's like you know there's more to the story than that so yeah so there are little missing pieces but the big one is the mental health thing and also every single one of these of the five i watched people were shot 
Everybody had guns. There's also no context about gun ownership or gun control. The role that guns play when two neighbors aren't getting along, particularly when one's crazy and obsessed and has an issue with everything his other neighbor does, but nobody seems to care about the gun thing. So, next. Inaccuracies, anachronisms. I can think of none. Oh. Wow. That's good. Okay. We'll move on. Storytelling. I was going to take away a whole point, but I'm only going to take away half a point because they do structure them well. In a lot of them, you see kind of one person's side, but then see the other person's side. So there is kind of a narrative arc that works. But many of the episodes have the issue of having too many talking heads. And they have this weird... (laughs) It's it's kind of funny. There's this woman on a few of them, Pat LaLama. And all it says is crime expert. (laughs) It doesn't say like who she is. Yeah. Well, I'm like, I could be that. But she, even though she's a little older, she talks and acts like a TV personality mm-hmm. so my guess is she's a former tv personality but it says crime expert and then they have and these are all women they have and they have another one where it just says crime reporter and they don't say who she's a crime reporter for they don't say what her stats are and then there's one who's on one from florida and i think the id was from a tv station in florida but then on the minnesota one they have her as crime reporter Hmm. So it's like they feel they have to have these people on here to tell the story. In one of them, the mother of the victim is talking and telling what happened. And then they have crime expert Pat Lalama telling what happened. Oh, and it's like you that. don't need her to tell what happened because the mom who was right there is telling I what know. happened. So you don't need this extra generic crime expert To tell a story, a story she wasn't involved in. And don't tell me that fucking woman on the Minnesota one, who was a reporter in Florida, was involved in the Minnesota one. And she's also wearing this weird, like, I don't know why why women can't just wear normal clothes. She's wearing this weird, like, cocktail dress type outfit, like the women on our local TV station are forced to wear. I think they feel they need this contextual expert, but... These people aren't experts. They're just people who are telling a story that they weren't involved in. So I taken away half a point. Oh, okay. and they have one legal analyst. <laughs> Although she's not analyzing the legalities. She's just friggin' telling the story like everyone oh, else is. So, uh, so but it's only half a point because they're, they do do a good job of structuring the story. Freshness. No, there's no freshness here. I'm taking away a point because it's just like, I mean, okay, the angle of the neighbors killing neighbors, sure, because you have to have an angle for these shows now, but it's the same formulaic, bad reenactment, mediocre narrator, too many talking heads, even though I did say the story structure, there were parts of it that were good. There's nothing fresh here. You know exactly mm-hmm. when you start watching it, which I guess <laughs> is one of the good things, too. Yeah. You know exactly what you're going to get. If you're in the mood for something like this, you just watch it and let it wash over you. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of just comfort food type right. of Right. It's, it's like eating potato chips or something. Repetition? 
I'll take away half a point. It has the repetition of people repeating the same story, which I dislike. It doesn't have the other thing I hate, which is when it comes back from a commercial break. Because it has the breaks, even though there are no commercials. When they come back from a commercial break and they have to repeat everything Uh, you already heard. They don't do that, so that's good. But I don't need someone else to tell me what the other person just said. No shit. I hate that. And the last one is beating the drum. There is minimal... I'm not going to take any points. That I, You do hear a little too much of, gee, why don't people just let things go and get along? Hmm. Um, but I'm not going to put that under beating the drum as much as it just goes back to the whole missing piece of the mental health thing because there are people who can't let people go. I mean, anybody who listened to our Carl Draga episode Ugh. knows that. There are That's people right. who cannot let things go and when you treat people as though they're going to behave normally the way you would it doesn't solve the issue for instance um someone i'm trying to remember who it was now was telling me their daughter and her husband bought a house in central massachusetts and they love it but their neighbor across the street is a problem he's this old guy and he gets you know, because they order a lot of things online, as don't we all? And he goes absolutely nuts when oh, yeah, they leave a package me about, on I their can't porch. Remember, yeah. The woman was bathing her two little toddlers, and the guy's banging on the door because she there was a package on her porch. Oh, God. You know, and they're in a fairly rural area. It's like one of those small central Massachusetts towns where if you leave uh-huh. a package on your porch, nobody's going to walk across your lawn I and know. take it. Except for this guy. There are people like the deer feeder. I think the Lyme disease, the guy felt was justification for his feelings, but he just didn't like the fact that the guy yeah. across the street had a deer feeder. And these people had, they had fairly big lawns. It's not like, most people would be delighted to see deer walk I across. Know. But he, I think some people just have to find something to drive them nuts and it's funny a lot of these guys and it's all guys it's all of them guys of the ones i watch they do have wives who egg them on or are as crazy as they are but it's driven by them but most of them either don't work or work nights and i don't know if that's a symptom well it might be or a cause nights and you you know i mean i used to work nights things during the day bother you I don't know. No, I'm no, uh, no. Okay. I'm not saying like normal oh, things I that see, bother saying, you. Yeah. What I'm saying is, it's just, it's almost like this is their hobby or their pastime. Oh yeah. You know, becoming obsessed with the neighbors. <laughs> and, um, but it's funny the similarities. Like there's at least two where the guys had head injuries that caused them to be deaf in one ear, which I thought was interesting. And the other thing too that I think speaks to the mental illness aspect that could be more explored. Of the five I watched, the the major harassers, in four of them, the major harassers are the ones who killed their neighbor, and. Actually, the first one, it was poison, then the other four were guns. And that's what I've seen before. The guy puts the poison in the Coke bottles. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's never really clear how the Coke bottles got into the house. But um, all of them, the guys think they're the victim. They're the ones being harassed. Mm -hmm. And they don't have any perspective. Like in this one, 
the guy who was being harassed was kind of fat. They were both disabled, middle-aged guys. But the harassing neighbor who ended up shooting the guy made these posters, had these posters printed up that said, like, whale watch every day next door. And, and stuff. <laughs> it's so horrible. I know. And, and I don't, I'm not laughing because it's funny. No. I'm laughing because it's horrible. He was a graphic artist. So he made all these posters basically just really, uh, some of them were just really disgusting and brutal about the guy being fat. And it wasn't clear, you know, another missing piece where he put them up. And that's part of one of the issues with the the missing pieces here that they, that I feel like if I read a book about it or saw a more in-depth show on one of these, I would get a clearer idea of what really happened. This guy had also built a fence going up, although they didn't do a good job of describing it. It took me most of the show to figure out what they were talking about. That's basically in the military, a kill zone, where if you go to the front door, he's got this like long fence going along the sidewalk. They kept calling it the L-shaped fence. It wasn't really L-shaped. But the thing is, you're trapped. To get out of there, you have to kind of go down the chute from the front yeah. door. Like, you can't just move to the side. So what he did is the, the next-door neighbor, Tony, had put up surveillance cameras because this guy was doing whatever. So he put up some infrared thing that made the cameras not record. <laughs> so Tony went over at, like, 3 in the morning to knock on the door to tell him to turn the light off or whatever. And he came to the door with his gun and shot Tony and then told the cops he thought it was an intruder. Although, as the prosecution pointed out, you have all these surveillance cameras. You don't look at them and see who's at your door before you open it with a gun and shoot someone. But Tony couldn't get away because the fence, he he tried to get away, but it's like 10 feet of fencing so you're in this narrow little chute where the, it's like shooting fish in a barrel, basically. I would say every single one of them, except for the last one with the poor guy with PTSD, which is actually the fifth, because maybe I'll watch some more tonight. Um, nah. Well, it's, you know, despite, I'm, I'm sure you you can tally up the score there. Yes, it's four. Yeah, despite that, if you're looking for something to watch that's fairly interesting and also, you know, makes you think about human nature and stuff, But in all of them, there's just basically a crazy person driving their neighbor nuts. But then they're like, well, he's doing this to me. Well, he's he's upset with you because you're harassing him. Mm -hmm. Like Tony, finally in his 50s, got a bachelor's degree. So they had a little cookout for him in the backyard with some friends over and stuff. And so the harassing neighbor, the guy who made the posters and stuff, took his leaf blower... Mm-hmm. And went over by the fence and just blowed and like blowed all this dirt over and shit like that. What so like, don't act like a victim when you're gonna do shit like that or make posters that say "neighborhood whale watch" with a picture <laughs> of your neighbor on it. <laughs> so um, remember, I was thinking of my, even though this isn't harassing mom and dad's neighbor, that if Murphy, their cat, was outside. Oh, yeah. He'd and he call. called and pretended, hi, I'm Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm outside and I want to come in. It's like, yeah. oh my God. Yeah. In any case, that is my well, thank NNW. You. It's Vengeance, Killer Neighbors. And it was on, I, I'm that pretty sure it was good. on HBO. And if you're not in the mood for Neighbors, there's also, like I said, Vengeance, Killer Coworkers, which I mm, may check out next. That one would be interesting. And Vengeance, <laughs> right, and Vengeance, Killer Lovers, which sounds kind of a little run-of-the-mill. But yeah. Anyway. 
next time you are going to be yep. doing something, mm-hmm. do you have something in mind? I do, and I even texted you about it, but oh, maybe yeah. you won't remember, and it'll be a surprise. No, I, well, you, there were a couple different things you were thinking of, so, before. No. Uh, was... It's a main one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, probably uh, yes, and I'm starting my new job tomorrow. Congratulations. Thank you. I've got my old job that um, so I have to get up and do. Job. So I guess we go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I kind of like it. Okay, good night. And, um, okay, thanks for Thank listening. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. You know. Yeah. No, he's he's good at his You job. know, I mean, I just did it because it, it's easier than shopping around for someone. You know. That's how the cults start. Whatever. I've had a very trying, long work day, so I'd like to say... Okay. I guess you don't have any sense of humor. No, I don't. Okay. I've been told that.